You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod, coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System. And I'm here with my co-host, Joanna McMahon. Hello. Good to be here. How you doing? Good today. Yeah. Nice and warm. It is. Finally, the snow is going away. Oh, thank God. Spring is finally here. Woohoo! So before we get started with the podcast, I want to say a huge thank you to all of our dedicated listeners. Please don't forget to rate and review our podcast in the iTunes Podcast Player app. We really appreciate it. So today's show is about eating disorders and how people living with celiac disease can be misdiagnosed with one or develop a disorder as a result of poor management of the gluten-free diet. You may have seen the recent headlines about a new study showing that women with celiac disease could be twice as likely as the general population to develop anorexia. For this particular study, researchers looked at more than 100,000 women and found that women over the age of 20 with celiac disease were double likely to develop anorexia later in life and women diagnosed before the age of 19 were nearly five times more likely to be diagnosed with anorexia than healthy women. Isn't that staggering? That really is. So to help us better understand these staggering rates of disordered eating in women living with celiac disease, we've got Dr. Rosemarie Satherly from the Department of Life Sciences and Medicine at King's College in the studio with me today. Dr. Satherly's research is focused on the link between celiac and disordered eating, and we are truly excited to learn from her. Welcome, Rosie. Hi, everyone. We're so glad that you made the journey all the way from London to be in our celiac disease clinic today. So let's start at the beginning. What comes first, celiac or anorexia? So that's actually quite a complicated question. So for some individuals, celiac disease comes before anorexia. So you get diagnosed with celiac disease and then you start to develop an eating disorder. But then for a lot of other individuals, you might have an eating disorder first before celiac disease is diagnosed, or you might have celiac disease and an eating disorder and they have nothing to do with each other. But then you also have another complicated case where some people can get mistakenly diagnosed as anorexic before when they're actually celiac. So a, a lot of girls in particular with celiac disease might, they, they do have celiac disease, but they haven't been diagnosed yet, and they'll actually get told they have anorexia, and that isn't necessarily the case. We actually saw that this morning in one of our classes we were at together where there was a, a, a young child who told us in the class that her doctor just said, eh, she's anorexic. Yeah, and I think that highlights, actually, it's not always anorexia. Sometimes it is celiac disease. So if... So I'm sorry. Is this just because they're being selective in what they're choosing to eat or not eat because they know it has a reaction to them? Like, what kind of... It can be a lot of things. So often people with celiac disease, before they're diagnosed, will lose a lot of weight, and they will appear quite gaunt because they're not getting the nutrition they need. And a lot of times it's a female who's losing weight. The easy diagnosis is anorexia. And also with celiac disease, they can, the patients can often just be small or thin and not gain weight. So a doctor, I guess, could easily look at that as they're choosing not to eat as opposed to they actually are eating and, and aren't gaining weight from it. So why are women with celiac disease more likely to develop anorexia? So we don't know the exact answer for this. There's a number of possible ways this might happen. So if you have celiac disease, you have to follow a strict gluten-free diet. So that means you're monitoring food, you're looking at the food content, you're looking at things like fat, sugar, nutrition. You might also look at calories while that's happening, and therefore you might start to develop an eating disorder. 
But as well as that, you've got things like you're diagnosed with celiac disease. It's really, really horrible. It's really, really difficult to have a new diagnosis. You've got to live with this condition. It's quite hard. So you're feeling quite down a lot of the time. And individuals who feel down a lot of the time, no matter what that reason is, in this case it's celiac disease, are more likely to develop, develop things like anorexia. Is this sort of along the lines of like an individual who's hypervigilant about the gluten-free diet that they might become so um, overly obsessed with the looking at the food labels that they could in turn develop a, a, a disordered eating? Yeah, so there's two ways that might play out. So you might follow your diet really, really strictly. You're monitoring absolutely everything. You're just exhausted, you're fed up, you're, you're depressed, you're low mood, and you develop an eating disorder because of your low mood. But in addition, some people with hypervigilance, they might develop not necessarily a clinical eating disorder, but something we call disordered eating. So it's not enough to become clinical, but these people will maybe skip certain meals, they'll be too scared to eat outside the home. So they develop this disordered eating because they're maybe too scared to eat outside the home, they're too scared of cross-contamination, and they will only eat where it's safe for them. So I think what's really important from what you just said to take away is that an eating disorder might not just look like a very skinny person, but it could go far beyond that to how it affects their emotions and how they choose to eat or choose not to eat um, socially. Yeah. Do you think possibly also with people who might have really been so, you know, gaunt and, and, and sickly before and then once they actually start to rebound on the gluten-free diet and start putting more weight on, do you think that also possibly attributes to some of it? So that's exactly what we find. For individuals who do start before their diagnosis who are very underweight, some of them actually quite liked being underweight and when they gain all this weight because their body's recovering, and that's a good thing, it is healthy, but they might get scared by this and think, oh, I like how I used to look, so I'm going to eat less to get back to that or cheat on the diet. Yeah, so a few individuals, and it's not many at all, but some individuals will deliberately consume gluten because they think it's gluten that's making them fat. So they'll use, um, sorry, they think it's the gluten-free foods that are making them fat. So they will use gluten to make them lose weight. Almost like someone that's using like um, diet pills or something yes. else. Ooh. Yeah, it's a lot like, so that's very similar to bulimia nervosa, where you'll use something, in this case gluten, to trigger either vomiting or diarrhea or whatever it is to help you lose weight. Ooh, that's so scary. The psychological mind is just so scary and fascinating as to what makes people sort of, yeah. But this, this is exactly why we need to look at things like not just the biology of celiac, we need to look after people's well-being, their social well-being, their psychology, we need the whole package for everyone. We like to say the biology, the psychology, and the foodology. Hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because if you don't put them all together, it's very hard to lead a, a normal mm -hmm. life. Yeah. So when should a medical provider screen a patient with an eating disorder for celiac disease? So this is, there's a lot of debate at the moment whether all individuals with celiac disease should be screened for eating disorders. But actually, although the prevalence for eating disorders and celiac disease is higher than the general population, it's not, it's not a lot. I mean, we're still talking about a very small group of people. So it would almost be, I wouldn't recommend screening every single person with celiac disease for an eating disorder, but it's more about actually educating medical providers. If you notice things that look like an eating disorder, if you notice weight loss that shouldn't be there, if you notice things like not wanting to eat, not wanting to go out, refusal, then that's when you should be maybe thinking, oh, perhaps it's time to screen someone. 
the Ben Howdy screen them, the tools that we use to detect someone with an eating disorder aren't necessarily that good for people with celiac disease. It might look like you're, you have an eating disorder when you don't. So for example, you've got celiac disease, you're monitoring your food intake all the time, you're watching things like nutrition labels, but you have to do that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, how are you going to stay gluten-free? Right. So if people are going to start screening uh, individuals with celiac disease for disordered eating, we also need to have the right tools so we can actually find the right thing. That's a really good point, <laughs> that all the things that you would use to test for one are things that we do anyways. Naturally. Now, what actually are some of those original tools? Like, so how do you normally screen somebody? So there are some questionnaires which you'd use to screen someone, and that might indicate to the healthcare provider that this person's at a greater risk that you can't actually diagnose someone with an eating disorder until they've sat down and had a clinical assessment with a psychiatrist or a psychologist. So you really need the diagnosis from the healthcare provider. How about the flip side? Should psychologists and physicians who work with patients with eating disorders be looking for celiac disease in their patient populations? So there is some evidence that individuals with eating disorders will later go on to develop celiac disease, which might seem quite illogical actually, but the reasons that this could happen, so there are two. There could be some genetic possibility that the two are linked, we don't know yet. Or it could be that um, individuals who have an eating disorder, their, their systems start to shut down when they've got a really severe eating disorder. Things like your heart, your lungs, it will all start to shut down. And your intestine could be one of those things. And that could be how celiac disease appears. But we don't know this yet. A lot more research needs to be done in this area. It's really interesting. I wonder how many, within eating disorder clinics, how many of the kids are there because the food that they're eating makes them feel bad, and so then they choose not to eat it, but they actually feel bad because of celiac disease. Yeah, then that does happen. Not a lot of the time, but I've certainly been in clinics where, eating disorder clinics, where later we found out actually the individual might, might have had some disordered eating, but their real diagnosis was the celiac disease. And when they go on the gluten-free diet, they feel much better. They gain weight. Yeah. A lot. They improve. Now, are the behavior? How long does it take for the behaviors to be unlearned? Then, though. Yeah, that's that's a difficult one. So, yeah. can you ever unlearn a behavior? Yeah. Um, so, what they'd say in uh, psychology is that it takes six weeks to embed a new behavior or unlearn an old one. But for things like eating, which is so ingrained in our cultures, we do it every day. You're probably going to need some support trying to unlearn those behaviors. Absolutely. I'm trying to think back to when I was diagnosed with celiac disease when I was 21 and in college. And at that point, I mean, it had been a long time that I was sick, but there were definitely like times before I even knew I had it when I would not do things because I would think that the foods that I would eat were then going to make me me feel sick. Well, it's funny, we just had, um, at the class that we were teaching, there was a patient who was in there, and um, they were discussing the fact that they're still trying to get a, a breath of what it possibly is that is triggering him. But he's at the point where he's eliminating so many things that it, it's almost like you wonder, like, you know, how many things are they eliminating, what's left, and those behaviors, are they going to possibly turn into something that's possibly dangerous? Yeah, because we, we do see people who are, maybe they might have had... Um, symptoms to what they think was, they might have been eating gluten-free bread before and they think that caused their symptoms, but actually it was the gluten, and now right. they're just too scared to eat any kind of mm -hmm. bread because bread is bad in their heads. Yeah. Or dining in restaurants, we have families all the time that 
they go to a restaurant one time, their child gets sick, and then they won't go back and eat in restaurants exactly. again. Yeah. So that actually, so that kind of describes another type of disordered eating we found, where people are just too scared to go out. They won't go out because of things like this. They will have had a bad event, or they will have had really, really severe symptoms before their diagnosis. So food is the enemy. Food is bad, and this is what people say to us. Yeah. I can't eat food. Food isn't safe for me. How do you counsel people who don't want to eat in restaurants to to give it another shot? So it's difficult. That's we are currently in the process of developing proper psychological tools and interventions and education sessions really to help them because a lot of it is about education it's about you know yes there's a risk but that risk can be manageable it's kind of a cost benefit thing Mm -hmm. are you never going to eat out so you're safe or are you going to eat out with some strategies such as asking questions to the uh, restaurant so you can eat out safely Mm. yeah i think that's one of the biggest problems that we see well, and it's hard to necessarily guarantee, like, and say, no, this restaurant is unequivocally safe, like, you know, because, yes, we know that you've had good responses there, or, you know, but at the same time, you can't guarantee that there's never going to be an issue. How do you think things, have you seen these gluten sensors to detect gluten yeah. in food? We, we don't have them in the UK, but I have seen them here. How do you think that affects people's ability to, to eat out? I mean, you know, like, we've seen it where people love it because they are confident that the food they're eating is safe, but then on the flip side, it sort of makes it more restrictive because then they're afraid when they see that it could contain a small amount, whereas, you know, before they might have just eaten the meal and been fine. Yeah, it's difficult. So I don't know a lot about the sensors, whether they... So normally we'd say people couldn't eat 20 parts per million. Right. Um, do the sensors detect below that? In which case, is it, it worth? It just yeah. it just senses if it's gluten present at all. So that's yeah. I'd probably say that's dangerous actually because yeah. small, tiny, tiny, minuscule parts of gluten are in all sorts of things, but there is not enough to affect someone with CFCs. I mean, it's even in your gluten-free food yeah. sometimes. Gluten-free bread will have the tiniest amount. I mean, it's not even visible to the eye, yeah. but it's also not enough to even affect your body in any way. We struggled with this. We, we tested out the gluten sensor with my four-and-a-half-year-old celiac, and it felt great when we went out and I you know, tested a bunch of things, and everything came back with a smiley face that it was safe. But then at two places that we eat at all the time, it came back as contains gluten. And we tested like different toppings on the pizza. We tested just the crust. They all came back as you know unsafe. And with the other dishes, they're things that we've eaten for years and never have had a reaction. He's never reacted to, I've never reacted to. But now, like, we've never gone back to those restaurants because we don't know. Mm-hmm. But I think you know your body, don't you? So you know you've asked the questions at the restaurant. They've given yeah. you the answers. You've got all the information you can about this place. If the monitor's still saying, no, this has got gluten in it, what's the likelihood that that's such a, such a tiny, tiny part, yeah. below 20 parts per million, yeah. when you know you've eaten here all the time? And see, I would make the decision for myself to go back, but that's me being able to decide what I'm putting in my body. Yeah. But for my son, I don't know that I can take the chance for him because we don't know exactly how... How much. How much. And Mm -hmm. also, I mean, I just don't think there's enough good science on the... There is The how much, right? Yeah. But so it's... Thinking through what you're saying, it's easy to see how you can, can fall into the... The, the traps. The traps. The traps yeah. of your own mind. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah, <laughs> but it is interesting. Um, I don't know how many families you see where the parents are diagnosed as well as the, the child being diagnosed, but I think it's a really big 
difference in how mm-hmm. you manage something for yourself versus how you manage something for your child and where you may be more lenient on yourself because you you know how you feel. I mean, I, I at least find myself much more vigilant about well, my with son. Well, that in mind, I'd be curious to even know, so do you see possibly any children or people that end up developing almost some of those unhealthy or eating disorder type behaviors based off of the family life and how they were possibly raised, where the fears from the parents almost got ingrained in the child? Yeah, so this is quite a common thing. So we're starting to look more now at parenting patterns, because some parents, you'll see, they're sort of like, we call them the well anxious. They want the best for their child, but they're so anxious that anything will harm their child. So we don't know whether that's going to make the child overly cautious, or actually when they get to teenage years, they can start to control their own lifestyle. Are they going to rebel against that and do completely the opposite? Uh, but I think this isn't just a problem in celiac disease. I mean, let's take school for an example. I'm sure you make your child do homework all the time. He's going to do the best he can at school. Yeah. But did you do that at school? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure we all bunked off a day here and there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all of a sudden you hit college and the parents right not there. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so we don't know exactly how how the parental role plays out in the child's life, but I suspect yeah. there's a lot of variability. So today, Rosie's been sitting in our clinic today, and it's been so interesting. Every family expressed the difficulty in dining at restaurants. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's great in our community that there are so many restaurants offering gluten-free options and catering to the masses who want gluten-free. But I do think it, it does make it more difficult because I think people very easily trust seeing that gluten-free menu mm-hmm. without really mm-hmm. thinking through what it means. And then they get sick. And then it sort of scars them for yeah. for coming back. And I think that's a real shame. It, it, it'd be wonderful when or if we ever get to a point where there's actual regulation on some of those gluten-free dining menus. But that's just such a long way before it would ever actually occur. Possible to enforce. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, we have the same problem in the UK. We have, so we have a national charity for celiac disease. Much smaller country than America, so much easier to regulate in some ways. But it's the charity that will say, right, this restaurant is certified by us. This restaurant is safe. Yeah. But then you have all these smaller people coming up and saying, well, we think this one's safe. And how do you actually trust it? Really, yeah. you've just got to look at the menu, ask the restaurant what's going on, and trust your instinct. And it changes day to day. It, oh, it does. does, yeah. yeah. What chef's in the kitchen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> and I think we really need to work, out, uh, work with the knowledge of restaurant staff. Um, not just the chefs and the cooks, it's also the waiting staff, mm-hmm. you know, how do you respond to these questions? Yeah, absolutely. So tell us about your research in disordered eating and what we can learn from it. Um, so when I started my research, uh, which was, must be about five years ago now, the evidence base for disordered eating in celiac was very limited. I think we had about 14 case studies and two um, sort of largest studies. So I kind of started with nothing, um, which made it good fun because I got to do all the exploratory Uh setting it up stuff. So um, we started and we created a model of disordered eating and actually found out there are kind of three sort of types that people could be divided into. So um, you've got individuals who will gain a lot of weight after their celiac disease diagnosis because their intestines are recovering, they're coming back to a healthy weight but obviously this might scare some people. Right. So they think, oh, I don't like this, I'm going to stop eating, or I'm going to eat less food, which is kind of a bit like your anorexia nervosa. 
Or they might say, oh, I don't like this. I need something to help me lose weight. I'm going to eat gluten or, or laxatives or whatever it is, mm -hmm. which is a bit like your bulimia nervosa. Right. So the, that was kind of the first group who had sort of eating disorders we already know about. Then we have um, another group of people who will uh, get diagnosed with celiac disease, feel tired, it's really difficult, it's really hard, feel quite down. It's, it's not fun having celiac disease sometimes. And because of this low mood, and they just want to feel good. So sometimes they'll see gluten-free food and they'll just eat it and they won't be able to stop, you know, gluten-free Kit Kats or whatever the equivalent food is here, come out. And they're like, oh, I can't stop eating them. I have to have these. I have to have loads and loads yeah. of them. So I was speaking to a girl a couple of years ago and she said uh, gluten-free, uh, I think it was cornflakes came out in the UK and she ate six, seven, eight boxes in one sitting, couldn't stop. Oh she deserved that food, she couldn't normally have it, but now she felt like she deserved it and it made her happy. So this is kind of a little bit like binge eating. Yeah. Mm. You eat food to elevate mm -hmm. your mood. Yeah. So those are kind of things that the in the eating disorder world, they already knew about. They knew anorexia nervosa existed, they knew bulimia existed, they knew binge eating existed. But then when we actually started to talk to people with celiac disease, we kind of found this other thing that existed, which is about hypervigilance. So I spoke to over 100 people with celiac disease, what it was like to live with celiac disease, what it meant for their eating and how they felt about eating. Um, and then I also invited them into our laboratory where we'd feed them gluten-free food and ask them how they felt when they ate it. And a lot of people would say they were very nervous about eating food in new settings. So when I asked people to try food in, my, in our laboratory, I gave them gluten-free food that was labelled, it was wrapped up, I hadn't unopened it yet. It was you know, straight off the supermarket shelf. It said gluten-free, they could read the ingredients. And they were sat in a room that was very white and clinical. It was a hospital room. So chances of cross-contamination are absolutely minimal. So they, they would open up, I would open up the package in front of them and they would have to taste it. That was the requirement, but then they could eat as much of it as they liked. And there were a few people who would taste it and then they wouldn't eat any more. And I said, well, why didn't you eat any more of that? And so I know, I know you've tried really hard, I know you give me all this food, but I can't eat it, I don't feel safe here. So why don't you feel safe? Um, I've cleaned everything, would you like me to clean anything more? And they're like, no, it's just it's not my home, I'm not in control, I need to take the food out of the packet, it needs to be in my house before I can eat it. And that's kind of this extreme hypervigilance yeah. where people can't go outside the home to eat food. So we'd have people tell me they wouldn't go to weddings because they were too scared of the food, or they wouldn't go to birthdays or kids found it really hard to go to school because they were just too scared, they couldn't eat outside. And just think about what that does to you socially. Oh, it's so isolating. Yeah. Yeah, so they would all say, you know, I've lost loads of friends, they don't understand, they don't understand that I just can't eat. And of course food is a massive social thing, that's what yeah. we do. Um, so it makes it very, very difficult. And then, but still bear in mind that these eating disorders and disorder eating only occur in sort of less than 20% of the population with celiac disease. Most people with celiac disease will be absolutely fine, living a normal, happy, healthy social life. Um, but it's a good reminder to us in the clinic when you hear people talking about this, 
you know, we hear it a lot in our kids' camps um, mm-hmm. where the kids will talk about how their parents don't let them do things. You know, they're not allowed to go to birthday parties. Mm-hmm. And you'll just see the outrage on the rest of the kids' faces. Like, you can't go to birthday parties? <laughs> and then trying to support them to, to talk to their parents and help them understand why it's okay for them to go. Yeah, because you can see where that fear comes from. Yeah. It does come from a reasonable place, but there are strategies you can yeah. put in place, uh, whether it's taking your own food along or whether yeah. it's talking to the person who's providing the food. What suggestions do you have for people living with celiac disease to prevent developing an eating disorder? Mm-hmm. So you're not, if someone's genetically predisposed to develop an eating disorder, it's going to be hard to stop that. Sometimes it's just going to happen. But actually, people with celiac disease should be at the same risk of the healthy population. Not, not everyone in the healthy population has an eating disorder. So it's things like, you know, live well, ask questions, eat food, eat the safe foods, take out snacks with you. You shouldn't be able, you shouldn't develop an dis- eating disorder. Um, in addition, for those who are particularly hypervigilant around food, it's about, you know, how can we make you confident? How can we reintegrate you into your social system and make you feel better so you feel confident eating food? And actually, if you make a mistake and you feel really unwell, that's okay, one mistake's not going to harm your, your body that much. Mistakes do happen, and they will happen, but it's not the end of the world. It's, it's a cost-benefit. Absolutely. What do you recommend that parents do if they aren't sure if their behavior is acceptable or not for their kids? So that, that's always really, really difficult when you're a parent because you obviously want the best for your child. And I think if there are concerns, I mean, if it's concerns about hypervigilance or eating disorders, it's either worth talking to your healthcare provider or looking at the symptoms and the support on eating disorders are really good on the uh, health health web pages on the internet. Um, and it's things that a lot of people know about. It's significant weight loss. It's not eating around your family. It's going in secret to eat. And that really requires the attention of your healthcare provider. If it's about hypervigilance and, all oh, they don't want to go to birthdays, is that because they might have disordered eating? then you bring it to your celiac uh, specialist. But as long as your child is able to eat and they're getting the nutrition they need and they are at a healthy weight, then it's probably okay. That's really good advice. And, you know, Joanna and I are here on the education team at Children's National. If you ever have questions or concerns or want help with finding safe options at school or at birthday parties, going to weddings, anything, um, you can always reach out to us. Most um, definitely. Children'sNational.org slash celiac. You can download our, our digital app. You can reach out to us. And um, that's why we're here. Yes. Well, this was such good information. I learned a lot today, yeah. <laughs> and um, I hope that all of you did as well. So I want to thank you, Dr. Satherly, for being with us today on this episode. Now, before we sign off, I've got our grocery shopping tip brought to you thanks to the generous support of Giant and Martin's Foods. Cereal is one of the most beloved breakfast foods for kids and adults alike. But did you know that many cereals are flavored with malt flavoring that's made from barley? You'll see this ingredient in many rice cereals, which makes them unsafe for a gluten-free diet. So, remember, when you're picking a cereal, be sure to double-check the ingredient label and select a cereal that uses naturally gluten-free sweeteners. That's all for today's episode. We'll talk to you again next time.